Let me start by asking you a question. Have you ever felt like you are going crazy as a Christian? I mean, what I mean specifically, you've spent time on a project, serving in ministry, maybe bearing the burden of someone else's soul, maybe counseling, and your good is visited with evil. And it just doesn't seem like the formula that you expected. My first thought is usually, have I been seeing this all wrong? It's not supposed to happen this way. I don't deserve to be treated like this. If I'm trying to advance God's kingdom, why are those who claim to love Jesus behaving so badly towards me? Sadly, then, it, it devolves downward and turns into, how can God let this happen? And I start to sin. You ever felt that way before? Am I going crazy? Tell me I'm not going crazy, right? We do. We have a tendency to feel like that. And it's usually based around when our good is being responded to with evil. And it doesn't seem to make sense. And it's not unlike what this first century church is dealing with. This small house church of Jewish believers. This persecution seems to be a direct result of them doing the highest good. Leaving Judaism, everything it has cost them, and following Christ. Seeking to advance His kingdom and they're being persecuted for it. Their family, their friends, people are strongly standing against them. It's not supposed to work this way. This is not what they signed up for, right? And they feel like they're going crazy. Their temptation is to sin, to question God, to push away to let their faith grow cold. And this morning, as we dive back into Hebrews, this preacher is going to give us a clear perspective on persecution. He wants us to see it rightly. He wants us to see the reality of it. He wants to answer the question, am I going crazy with the resounding, no, you're not. You're just not seeing it rightly. Would you pray with me? We'll look at the text together. Oh, Father, we need this as a body of believers. We, too, have not suffered to the point of shedding blood, and yet we can see persecution on the horizon, and already it's easy to start questioning, is it supposed to be this way? Is this what I signed up for? Why is my good being taken as evil, even by those who claim to love Jesus? Am I going crazy? Gracious Father, we thank You so much for Your timeless Word. It spans the ages. It is true for all time. And what was true for these Jewish believers is just as true today. 
that any persecution that we encounter first passed before your throne. That even though real evil does inflict us sometimes, Satan is on a short leash and you are still on your throne, God and King of all creation. And that everything happens for your glory and for our good. Father, give us perspective today. Give us eyes to see. Give us a heart that is teachable. And give us a hunger to see things in the long term. Help us to understand that you are not just a good and loving Father, but the perfect, all-good, all-loving Father that does what is best for us, even regardless of what it costs you. And so as we come off of the Lord's table, we thank you for the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived the life that we could not live and died the death that we deserved, absorbing the just wrath of God. Father, we pray specifically for the unbelievers among us today, those who are depending upon their own good works and their own good nature for salvation. Help them to understand what the Bible says about us, that we are thoroughly depraved as a result of Adam's sin and our own. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way we can work our way to heaven. The price has been paid by our Lord Jesus Christ, and all you require of us is to turn from our sin and self-worship and bow the knee to Jesus Christ. To follow Him. Father, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. May they hear the word of God. May there be a transfer of allegiance. And may their names be written in the book of life. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, we have just come off six months, believe it or not, in chapter 11. If you're visiting with us today, normally we don't spend that long in one chapter. But it was just too rich to pass up. I mean, character after character, these wonderful examples of flawed yet faithful men and women, practical illustrations and examples of what we needed to see after 10 doctrinal chapters. This preacher wants us to know what a genuine, living, working faith looks like, wrapped in flesh and blood, even when those people don't see the fulfilled promises, even when they suffer persecution, even when they don't understand why things are happening the way they're happening, they trust in the Lord and what He has planned. Let's do a quick recap since I've been out of this text for a few weeks. Turn back a page to chapter 11, verse 1. Again, after 10 chapters of the doctrinal, he's going to define faith. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That's very, very important there. For by it, the men of old gained approval. And then he launches into these illustrations with Abel and Abraham and others. 
Real flesh and blood saints. Real guys that believed in the Lord of the promise. One who could not break His Word. One who would not and could not lie. They were absolutely convinced in things they would never see. Look at verse 13. All these, what? Died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Now let your eyes fall down to verse 39 after several more illustrations and examples. All these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. He wants this little house church to emulate the same. This this little house church of new covenant saints that wants to go back to the old covenant, the old dusty Judaism. He's saying, hey, this old dusty Judaism you want to go back to, this old covenant, may I remind you that those saints believed they had faith and they looked forward to the promise, the promise that you would receive, that apart from us, meaning receiving the promise of our Lord Jesus Christ, their faith would be in vain. We get to experience it. If they were willing to look and see as though it was real right in front of them, the promise that they would never see, How much more should we as New Covenant believers who look back to the cross stand confidently in the face of adversity? Are you seeing how this fits? How much more? That's going to be a repetitive sort of argument that the preacher keeps bringing to the forefront. Why would you go back when you have seen the promise? He wants this little house church to emulate the faithfulness of these Old Testament saints. He wants them to persevere. Look at chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, meaning in light of all these faithful examples, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As great as these Old Testament saints were, as amazing as their feats of endurance were, in the face of persecution, how much more was the example in our Lord Jesus Christ? Verse 3, For considered Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And that's where we left off last time. Run the race with endurance fixing our eyes on Jesus, casting off both the sin and anything that so easily entangles us. Were these believers entangled with things? Are we entangled with things? If we're honest with ourselves, 
the, the aversion to pain, and we all have it, the aversion to pain when it comes to persecution is because we like our comfort. Our comfort in things, our comfort in relationships, our comfort in our own status and our own reputation. If you think about it, if we were to cast aside those things, it's a lot easier to receive the persecution that comes towards us. And so he's going to do something interesting here. He's going to take this, this chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 3. He's going to encourage them in endurance, fixing our eyes on Jesus, running the race. And then from verse 12 onward, he's going to again encourage them to strengthen the hands, strengthen the weak. But in this center section here, verses 4 through 11, he's going to give us perspective. He's going to answer the question, am I going crazy? Because it doesn't feel like it should be this way. I feel like I should be persecuted if I've done something wrong. But not for doing what's right. And here's the key. You might want to write this down. There is a good in control of this evil. There is a good in control of this evil, and this evil is for your good. That's some, that's some high doctrine right there. That's going to be difficult for us to get our head around, but he's going to help us. That what you're experiencing, this persecution, let's call it what it is, it is evil. These people are behaving badly. In their case, former family, friends, they're persecuting them. They're making it hard on them. It's wrong what they're doing. It is, I'm going to use the word, it is sinful. And it's going to get worse in the future. Nero's going to really, really put them between the hammer and the anvil. It's going to be wrong. It's going to be sinful. And yet they're called to remember that God is above it all. God is in control of all. Nothing comes to them that didn't first pass before His throne. And then he goes a step further. This persecution, this, this pain that we're so averse to is actually for our good. That doesn't mean we delight in like, oh boy, it's painful, this is wonderful. No, 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 it's not that sort of sadistic way. It's that God is training us. God is in control of this evil. And this evil is being used to, we're going to see this phrase again, Discipline us. I want you to notice, we're going to do a little uh, word study here. Take your Bibles and look at verses 4 through 11. And get you a pen if you have it. I want you to circle. If you don't write in your Bible, as I keep mentioning, write in your Bible. Just get used to it. It's a copy of the Word of God. God's not going to be offended that you write in the Bible. Okay? I want you to circle the following words. I want you to see how many times the preacher uses them. Discipline and sons. Discipline and sons. Verse 5. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Verse 6. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son. Verse 7, it is for discipline 
that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, verse 8, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Verse 9, we had earthly fathers to discipline us. Verse 10, for they disciplined us. Verse 10, again, it's in italics, it's implied. He disciplines us for our good. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment. Seems not to be joyful. You think the preacher's trying to make a point here? Discipline and sons. It's like, well, well, hold on. Preacher, you know, I kind of like verses 1 through 3. Don't grow weary. Don't lose heart. Endure. Remember, Christ endured. You know, you're like, you understand my plight. Persecution, well, it just stinks. Can I get an amen? Y'all don't really think it stinks? I hate persecution. I hate not being liked. I hate being yelled at. I hate someone mocking me. I hate when it costs me my reputation. I hate it when it costs me my comfort. In my flesh, I want to be appreciated. Right? So the first three verses, I'm like, you got me. Man, you understand me. This is great. Wonderful therapy session. Thank you, preacher. And then he has to go into verse 4. And he has to take me a step further and say, basically, don't you realize your perspective is wrong? I think I'm going crazy. And he says, no, you're not going crazy, but you are seeing things wrongly. This persecution is ordained by God for your good. Well, now you're starting to meddle. He's going to give us three points that are going to help us see things rightly. And I need this, guys. I've been in this text all week. I do not feel ready to preach it. I need about another year or so, (laughs) okay? I need some time because it's just kind of now sinking in. I'm like, okay, I think I kind of understand it here. Uh, And and it's supposed to travel then to my heart. I've really got to embrace it and believe it. And it's, it's hard. But it's so sweet. I mean, I seriously mean this. It, if we can understand this, this gives us the fortitude that we could not gut up on our own at all. It just changes things. Three points are going to help reshape our perspective and help us respond well when persecution comes. Number one, Remember the reality of persecution. Remember the reality of persecution. Number two, respond with endurance to discipline. You see, I switched it there. And number three, rejoice in future fruit. Let's take this first one. Remember the reality of persecution. I scream out, like these first century Christians scream out, I think I'm going crazy. Well, actually you're not, but there's two things you have forgotten. Verse 4, you have not, number one, resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. So no, you're not going crazy, but let me bring perspective. You're complaining about persecution. Um, It's been pretty light so far. I mean, it's a very gracious coach, 
but he's kind of rebuking him, and he's saying, yeah, it's not that bad yet. You're not bleeding, as my mom used to say. Quit your crying. The preacher shifts from the image of an endurance foot race, verses 1 through 3, to a picture of a boxing match. I hear grandpa used to do it, you know? And this is not any boxing match. This is not like what we know of golden gloves or, or even sanctioned boxing with, with padded uh, you know, gloves and, and, and ropes and a referee and three-minute rounds. No, 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 no. This is ancient boxing, and it's a sport they knew well. Just like the endurance foot race, this is right up there. The Isthmian Games had boxing as one of their sports, and the boxers would wear oxhide gloves that had the fingers exposed, but came all the way down their arms. And they had knots covering all of them with lead and iron sewed into them. These gloves were called limb breakers. Archaeologists know how brutal this sport was, because when they were doing, archae- when they were doing excavation on the Temple of the Sun, they found a bronze statue of a guy with these gloves on, unrecognizable ears, (laughs) scarred chest, and a a nose that was really swollen. (laughs) It was a brutal sport. You spilt blood. I mean, you would hit. I mean, it was like mixed martial arts with no referee. He's saying, hey, the original Greek translation, cowboy up, church. Man up. I know you're enduring persecution. It's not that bad yet. So you're not going crazy, but let me give you perspective. Now, what's interesting here is right off the bat, you should realize this sounds a little familiar, right? Running a race, boxing. 1 Corinthians 9.26, the Apostle Paul, I run in such a way as is not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I may be, after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So, it's like he's sympathetic, but he's pushing them. He's not pushing them to be mean or belittle them. He's pushing them because he wants them to stay in the ring. Because remember, what are they doing? Twelve chapters of drifting. Drifting. And drifting has a destination. I'm going to give you a new one today. If drifting has a destination, here's another one. Endurance exemplifies ownership. Endurance exemplifies ownership. If drifting has a destination, and that destination is disqualification, right? Endurance, those who endure, show themselves to be children of the Father. Endurance exemplifies ownership. But you know, as if that's not enough, there's even more here. Because remember, they want to go back to the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant. They want to reject the Messiah because He is the one that is drawing fire of persecution. And so when it says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding blood, they also get it. Because who shed blood? Jesus Christ. 
You claim to follow this master, and yet you have not, you haven't even pricked a finger yet, and you know the blood he shed. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Verse 3. John 15, 20 says it well. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But there's something else they've forgotten. They have forgotten reality. Reality. They've forgotten the reality of persecution. Look at verse 5 with me. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. Now you see that block lettering, that's a direct quote from what Jeff read this morning, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And Solomon knows what we all recognize to be true. A good father, a father who actually loves his kids, will discipline them. Right? And if that's true... And it is, there's, a, there's an inextricable, amazing link that we cannot get past here when it, when it talks about persecution. It's unmistakable. That means that the Heavenly Father is not only in control, but Satan is on a short leash. It means that our Heavenly Father is both good and loves us as sons, as His own children. And what we are experiencing is as a result of that relationship because as a good father, he wants to mature us. And if you're a parent out there, you know that sometimes there is no way to mature a child except by discipline. It doesn't happen any other way. Therefore, persecution, as evil as it may be from other people who have evil intent actually has a divine purpose. And that purpose is to mature our faith, to strengthen our faith and grow us into Christ-likeness, to make us holy. It's training. And so understanding this, we're not to regard persecution or discipline lightly or to faint in the midst of it. If you think about those as two ditches on the side of the road, we don't have the option to either quit or to ignore it. We don't have the option to just say, this is too hard, I'm going to walk away, or to say, hey God, this is not fair, or not think deeply about what God is trying to teach us. And, and I think that latter, I think that's what's really difficult. Because if you're like me, when pain comes, I'm like, Looking for the medication. I, I don't want to hear what's going on. I, I, want to, I want to escape. I want to, I want to go sleep. I want to get out of here. All these things. But he's saying, no, 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 no. Keep your senses alive. Seek to understand what the Lord is doing. 
Don't criticize. Learned this morning about the book of Job. In all these things, Job did not sin. But God rebukes him for one thing. What is it? When he basically says, yeah, I guess God just darkens counsel without wisdom. Meaning like God's some sort of cosmic despot. He's not telling me what he's doing. And you remember what happens in Job 38? The father says, I'll ask you and you tell me, gird up your loins like a man. Where were you? And he goes through just chapter after chapter of long list. I'm God. We know that God will not give us more than we can handle. That's true, right? That's 1 Corinthians 10.13. But we need to see things differently. We need to remember we've forgotten. Our second point is respond to endurance with discipline. Look at verse 7. For it is for discipline that you endure, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there that his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which we have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. So if you want to grow a church, you want to get a lot of people in, it's best when you get to a passage on discipline, you just kind of skip over it, right? Has discipline become a dirty word these days? Even among Christian bloggers, discipline has become, you know, redefined, something we don't do. We don't even want to use that word, discipline. The world, as I keep saying, has taken that which is good and now makes it bad, and that which is bad and makes it good. The thought is, is that if you really love your children, you will just let them express themselves. You'll just let them find their own way. But discipline, no, that's wrong. You know, the Bible says otherwise. Proverbs 29, 15, The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 13, 24, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Now, you'll know this if you become part of the family at Metro. You know this if you've been here for any length of time. We believe you disciple the whole man. And so we will help you learn to discipline your children. Why? Because we don't want you to hate them. You say, but I don't feel like I hate them. I know, but the Bible says you hate them because you do. You care more about your own comfort than you, you do about their maturity, their well-being. You care more about honoring yourself or even them than you do about honoring God. I know this is a punch in the throat, but you can't go anywhere now, so just take it. We do. We want you to love your own children more than you love your comfort. And so we won't shy away from actually explaining that discipline is spanking. Not timeouts, 
Not reasoning, not bait and switch, not diversion, not bribing to stop. It's the rod of reproof. And when they are younger, you use the divine instrument of the rod of reproof that will then become, as they get older, the rod of Scripture. God has no grandchildren. We don't make our children become believers. But we are required when they are younger to restrain evil and pray that God will change their hearts. And so we do that. And it's hard, let's be honest. It's hard for us in this day and age because people use words like, well, spanking is abuse or discipline is this, that, and the other. And and we start to believe it after a while. But the ancient world did not have to be convinced of this. Even rank pagans in Rome understood this. So much so that in the Greek, the word for discipline is actually the word for child instruction. It's the same word. They, they saw discipline as inextricably linked to rearing your own children. And guess who was responsible for child education? The father was. The father was. He was to care for them, mature them, and he was to use discipline to do so. By the way, the ancient Greek shows us that this was the original source of those words that no kid understands, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. (laughs) But the reason I bring up the earthly picture there is because the preacher does. And the connection is made, you're not going crazy. But you do need perspective. Deuteronomy 8.5 says it well, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Persecution, while done at the hands of evil men, God is not the author of evil, but he does allow and ordain for our good. So we will be able to handle discipline a lot better if we see it as from the Father's hand. And you say, but, but this is still a hard concept to swallow. And I would say, amen. It is. It is a very difficult concept to swallow. Why? Because I go back to the original question. Am I going crazy? I haven't done anything wrong, right? That I know of. I'm sure I've done something wrong, but, but I, don't, I don't realize it. Well, I think it helps understand that discipline is not always about punishment for doing wrong. You see, we've got to go back and reform, correct our understanding of discipline so that we can then see persecution as loving from God's hand. You see, discipline, I'll say it again, is not always about punishment. Its chief goal is education for maturity. Kent Hughes and John MacArthur do a great job of explaining this. But basically they say, hey, there's three kinds of discipline. There's the one we think of most often, that's the corrective, right? Okay, you did wrong, you're going to be disciplined. In the same way, God disciplined David for his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Okay, and yet, when David repented, he was forgiven and restored. But even that discipline was not God's wrath upon him. God doesn't set his wrath upon his own children, though he does correct them. Okay, so that's corrective discipline. Even David understood this, Psalm 119, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 
The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. So there is corrective discipline out there. There's also preventative discipline. The Apostle Paul was given a thorn in his flesh, a messenger from Satan. But had he done anything wrong? No, it was so that he might not become what? Proud to keep me from exalting myself. So there was a discipline, a restraint, a heavy-handedness, if you will, to keep him from falling into sin. So there's corrective discipline, there's preventative discipline, but there's another kind of discipline too. There's educational discipline. Martine taught again about Job this morning. That is the perfect example of educational discipline. Job was the ideal example of one who was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Job 1.22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. And yet, look at the discipline that Job endured. It was for his maturity. He hadn't done anything wrong. It was for his education. You know, I've quoted 2 Timothy 3.12 a lot. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, that's a good thing, right, will be persecuted. That feels like a bad thing, but what if we restructure that paraphrase? Indeed, all who desire to live godly, good thing, will be disciplined, good thing. You see the difference? It's the testing of our faith, James says. The testing of our faith that produces endurance. And what were the first three verses about? Chapter 12? Run the race with endurance. It's going to be a lot easier to run the race or, or stay in the ring if you can understand when you're receiving those blows, when you're starting to feel the cramps, when people are throwing things at you from the stands, that there's a higher purpose to this evil they're doing, and that God is using it to shape you and strengthen you and give you an endurance that you would not otherwise have. Do we really believe that? That's what I was learning this week. There is no other way to learn the endurance, to, to grow in the holiness other than under adversity. And this, this educational discipline, this is the kind of discipline that I think is being talked about here. They haven't done anything inherently wrong that we know of. Their good is being taken as evil and they are being persecuted. And he says, but ah, if you could understand that this is actually discipline, you will be able to endure. He loves them too much to spare the rod and leave them weak in their faith. I remember when my, uh, <clears throat> my younger brother was in seventh grade, my parents had worked very hard. Schools had become bad in Dallas, and they worked very hard to send us to a private school, Christian school. The only problem was is that it was in downtown Dallas, and so we had to take the city bus there. It was quite a long way away. And I remember my little brother, seventh grade, had joined the band, and he would regularly, continually forget his trumpet. And there's no coming back from that during the day. Mom and Dad aren't going to drive downtown to deliver the trumpet. And it happened again and again and again. And they tried everything. 
you know, reminders, set the trumpet out by the back door, you name it. Finally, I remember one day Pops sitting him down and saying, Son, I'm going to do something that will help you not forget your trumpet anymore. And he spanked him. Everyone gasps. Don't worry, he lived, okay? He lived, and guess what? He didn't forget his trumpet anymore. Now, he wasn't doing it intentionally, but he was doing it with other priorities. And he had no focus. And he, he needed discipline to create discipline so that he could mature as a young man. And this boy who used to forget his trumpet all the time and worked hard to pull C's now has two master's degrees and a PhD. I'm pretty sure that whooping had something to do with it. <laughs> the point is this. If earthly fathers do what is best to help their sons mature them, even when no one really wants to do that, how much more is our heavenly Father willing to have us go through adversity to strengthen our faith? You've heard me quoted many times, but I love Johnny Erickson Tata's quote. God loves me too much to leave my faith in a weak estate. Therefore, he gives me adversity so that it might strengthen it, so that when I arrive that day in heaven, I will have a mature faith, and he will get all the glory. Look at our third point. He brings it all together. Rejoice in future fruit. Verse 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. And I'm like, amen! Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And I love this. I just, I feel like the pastor, the coach, after pressing them, pressing them, pressing them, just kind of draws back a little bit and he says, yeah, it's, it's painful. Let me just acknowledge, it hurts. I'm not going to pretend it doesn't. But if you could have perspective that this is from your Father and for your good and to make you like the ultimate example of our Lord Jesus Christ, you can choose to rejoice in the long game. You can choose to rejoice that what is happening to you now will make you a better soldier for Jesus Christ, will make you a better son, will mature you into an effective Christian. These are things that only the refiner's fire can produce in us. And church family, let's be honest, hardship will either cause us to drift away or draw near. There's no, there's no treading water, right? Persecution, discipline will cause us to either draw near or to drift away. It will either strengthen our faith or it will prove that it is worthless. And the key is not always understanding why, Lord, why? As best we can tell, Job died never knowing why. But do you know what he knew? Who? And we can live without knowing the why if we know the who, right? And if we can know the who, even at the hands of evil men, God is in control. 
And he loves me, and what he is doing for me is best for me. So let me leave us with just a few practicals, because I need them. These are things I'm working on. Number one, when we are rejected by those we like their esteem, our family, our friends, even those who, quote-unquote, love Jesus as much as we do, but reject us because maybe we take the Bible too seriously. We have a choice. We have a choice. We can trim our doctrinal sails. We can drift from the faith. We can question God, or, or we can see it from God's hand. We can find our acceptance in an audience of one, and we can pray for those who persecute us. With this perspective, we have the ability to do that. We have the ability not to let a root of bitterness take hold. Number two, when we're kicked to the curb through no fault of our own, and our good is taken as evil, we have a choice. We can crawl into a hole, cry and complain, talk about how the church is abusive, want to have a relationship with just me and Jesus and shut the world out, or, or we can see it from God's hand. We can see it as a faith workout and perhaps a ministry redirection. God has something for us. Finally, number three, when it actually costs us in the future, and I mean really costs us, we can choose to take it. We can choose to take it, knowing that it is momentary light affliction, that it is child training from God's hand, and it is nothing compared to the glory that awaits us. Amen? So you're not going crazy. God is shaping us as mature sons and daughters.